0: to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We are in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. I've been praying today, though it's a, a bit of a hard passage and a bit of a hard message, that, that perhaps for someone today this will be one of those aha moments that it finally gets through. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 10 marks the beginning of a, a new paragraph uh, that you won't hear referenced often as uh, Haggai poses a question uh, for the readers, as it's been of enormous concern for the church for two millennia now, uh, here it is, when we carry holy meat in our garments, do other items that holy meat touches, uh, do they also become holy? We've been struggling with that for a while now. I, I apologize, I've waited more than eight years to address this most urgent issue, uh, paralyzing conundrum. Yet as funny as the text, or as odd as the text may sound to us, it didn't to them. The priest and the handling of the sacrifices and the meat uh, was was a common understanding uh, in their day. And uh, this concern is crucial today, uh, as crucial as it was for Israel in Haggai's day. Does making physical contact... With something, something that is holy, does that make everything else that it touches holy? In in other words, the the question that Haggai offers here, poses to the priests is this Does ceremonial purity transfer physically from one object to another or, or to us merely because we have made physical? contact with it? You know, such a question for us who know we are saved by grace. Well, that's absurd. That's absurd. But if we hastily conclude that Christians would surely never need to engage in this debate today, uh, enter sacramentalism through the partaking of the Catholic Eucharist, For centuries, there has persisted a false understanding that incorrectly claims that your sins are forgiven simply through making physical contact with the bread in the cup. The wafer is holy, and therefore every time your tongue touches it, your sins are cleansed. If that were true, it would seem to alleviate the need to examine yourself rightly, as Paul calls the church to do, before taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, just, instead, it would be, just take this pill, and all your sins are gone. Scripturally, that is not true. And uh, this is the reason we, we here, we don't typically refer to, the, uh, we don't employ the term sacrament. Uh, to refer to things... blessed rituals, really, that are sacred. I'm not against the term sacrament as much as I am the connotation that comes with it. Blessed rituals such as water baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, though these two ceremonies, well, they, they surely are sacred. They, they are set apart, holy, to the kingdom of God. Uh, therefore, they are holy... Uh, they're prescribed only to those who are redeemed through faith in Christ. Uh, though that, that is true, they are holy. The term sacrament has over the centuries gained a connotation, an added meaning, uh, a reputation that you know purification is transferred to the recipient merely by participating in the ceremony. It's not an isolated belief either. I was recently asked... Uh, by a few men here at church, a little gathering, whether we should allow our unbelieving children to partake of the Lord's Supper. And uh, so here's an answer to that question. There may be disagreement uh, on this, uh, but my question would be, why would we? With an absence of faith, in, in the absence of a regenerated heart, they cannot examine themselves rightly. And being that uh, communion is not efficacious for the removal of sins, for the forgiveness of an unbeliever's sins, uh, is surely not to their spiritual detriment if parents are to withhold it. Perhaps it would be better decide whether you agree. Perhaps it would be better to make them watch you and perpetually ask you why they don't get it. Maybe that would spark some some dialogue in the home. Uh, historically, the Reformed view, and I believe it is is broadly the Baptist view as well uh, would be that communion is for Christians, and you should therefore first express a public confirmation in the Christian faith. Anybody grew up with that term? A confirmation that you are part of the Christian community. Uh, we see that as water baptism. That's the confirmation you're professing that you are in the faith. You could reply, son, you know, once you, have, once you desire to publicly profess allegiance to Christ through water baptism and after you have successfully run the gauntlet of Pastor John's questioning, uh, then, only then, young grasshopper, you will be ready. Now, a lot of grace here. If you've previously allowed your children to partake, uh, it's not the unpardonable sin. Unless the elders demand it, I'm not going to stand guard at the tray. Uh, It'll take time for people to process this and decide whether they agree. Uh, But uh, these foundational, they're holy ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're not for unbelievers. They're for the kingdom of God. They're set apart to the kingdom of God. Even for water baptism, I over time have strengthened the questioning. Something as you go on in in pastoral ministry, uh, when asked, you know, why do you want to be baptized? The child's answer should be a little bit uh, more than, well, because I love Jesus. That is cute. They're on the track. uh, Looks good in a video. But... Child baptisms are not notches in our belt. And since it doesn't save the sacrament, the, the holy ordinance, as we would refer to it, uh, there exists no competition between parents as to whose child will be baptist, baptized the youngest. I've already won that. I was just a few days old the first time around. Didn't help a bit either. I don't know why that was. Only confused me, really. Later in life, I didn't understand. Holiness and purity are not physically transferred through ceremonies such as baptism and communion. It isn't transferred to you. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. I'd like a heart that participates uh, in these to be old enough to remember swearing their undivided loyalty to Christ. It's somewhat hard to ask a five-year-old if he or she has cast away every lust and greed and abominable idolatry from their life in order to follow Christ. Uh, are, are they prepared to suffer martyrdom, if needed, to follow Christ? Uh, well, these aren't my questions. Maybe they should be. Maybe they should be. Or, or at least maybe questions for baptism should include, you know, can you explain these words of Jesus? If anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I don't think the apostles ever concocted a written exam for baptism. Uh, some suggest a class for it. Uh, but, I, but I do believe. Though there isn't a test prescribed, I do believe those early converts who were baptized on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, I do believe they knew the somber implications of carrying a Roman cross. The penalty is huge. And Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Saying, you know, I want to live for Jesus, that is great but it is much different than saying I am prepared to die for Christ. My belief and my personal belief is that the holy ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are reserved for believers. Turning to our passage, you're probably thinking, what's this got to do with our passage? Turning to our passage, we, what we read beginning in verse 10, uh, to our ears it's strange, it's enigmatic, it's tough to, tough to pick up on. I'm confident that Haggai's illustration does not concern a sacrament. And I don't think he's worried about holy meat. He is supplying a broad and overarching principle. uh, You will not be deemed holy by God simply by touching something holy with your hands. But your defilement, Your defilement, we will learn, transfers to everything you touch. Because if you remain unclean, your uncleanness contaminates everything. The hands represent you, symbolic of you. And this is why we all need to have holy hands unstained by sin. We therefore must be cleansed. And how are we cleansed? We'll get to that. As I read uh, this, my suspicion is the holy thing that God is referring to, that that the meat is symbolic of uh, in this occasion, is that God has in mind their recent temple building project. It's now three months old. Ninety days they've been into building the temple. Though this temple is surely holy. Surely, holy, don't think just because your hands have touched it and that you've been part of building it that, that somehow that transfers to you. If this explanation of the text in the temple is correct, this could make this passage, uh, an Old Testament, a quintessential passage of a New Testament illustration in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, Don't think that because you've joined your hands into building something for God, that by it you're making yourself clean. Until your dead heart is made alive by God and through His Holy Spirit in faith, everything that you touch is going to remain unclean until that day. You decide what you think of this passage, beginning in verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold or cook cook food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? The priest answered, answered, Oh, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Everything they touched, if they're unclean, it becomes unclean. R.C. Sproul provides what I find to be a helpful comment. He says, quote, The questions that the Lord tells Haggai to direct to the priests are designed to show that while ceremonial holiness is not transferable, ceremonial defilement is. Haggai then applies the lesson of the preceding questions to his hearers. That's in verse 14. They have defiled the work of the temple and their offerings because their estrangement from God is deeper than they realized. The mere presence of a rebuilt temple, says Sproul, will not render them holy as a people. God demands genuine change of heart and life, not mere outward conformity." Unquote. I think that's the root of the problem. There's a, there's a believing remnant, we learn, that having turned outwardly obedient to build enters a perilous phase of temple building now. They, they might be tempted to start feeling pretty good about themselves. Or, or, or there's another possible scenario, another observation. Uh, since it seems that they were, there were initially many unbelievers, many unbelieving bystanders, bystanders when the temple started to be built, perhaps now with the temple project 90 days uh, old and it's gaining steam and the work is going on, maybe some unbelievers decided it's time to join in. There's activity over there. We better join with it. If that is the case, uh, we have a mixed group now. We would have tares among the wheat all building, well, together, but not together. We see it in the church virtually every day. It's a, it's a mixed bag. Can't see hearts. Only God can see the heart. In Scripture, God often raises complaints against the community and not against individuals uh, because whoever is listening, whoever possesses a heart, a defective heart, uh, Those unbelievers need to be warned. And likewise, for those of us who are believers, we need to be reminded that our spiritual works do not improve upon the holiness we receive in Christ. Jesus didn't just begin our sanctification. He finishes it. What we do along the way, what we join our hands to, uh, it does not contribute to holiness at all. Rather, our Christian service is a spiritual response to God's grace. It's called worship. It's a response. Acts of worship. But no matter how sacrificial, no matter how holy they may appear, they don't make us more holy than the forgiveness and grace Christ has shown us through faith. We can't improve upon what Christ has done on the cross at Calvary. We aren't finishing the work that he began. Rather, we respond to the work that Christ has finished. John Calvin writes, Now, when all of them strenuously undertook the work of building the temple, their industry was indeed laudable, For it was proof of their piety. But when the people thought that God required nothing more than a splendid temple, it was manifest superstition. For the worship of God we know is corrupted when it's confined to the external, visible things. When that occurs, says Calvin, God is transformed into a nature not his own, for he is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. We don't want to confuse the Creator with the creation. Our good works, well, they're to be reckoned as nothing—nothing nothing more than a response of worship to God's grace, uh, never as a means of sanctification or attaining salvation. The good works we set apart to building Christ's kingdom, uh, though they are surely holy, surely holy, uh, they do not transfer holiness to us. We, we don't make ourselves clean. To clarify to these builders how the work of their hands cannot save them, the Lord declares through Haggai well, now ask the priest for a ruling. The King James and the ESV, I believe, offer a superior rendering uh, with that. More literally, Haggai says, Now ask the priests concerning the law. The Hebrew word in verse 11 for law, it's Torah. So, So Haggai essentially asks the priests, or God does through Haggai, Consult the Torah for a ruling. Okay? In Luke 10, verse 25, when asked how to inherit eternal life, Jesus responded, oh, What does the law say? How does it read to you? Obviously, Jesus in the Bible never ask, well, How do you feel about holiness? Do you have any ideas you'd like to share with the group? Or, or how does how does that, holy, that holiness make you feel inside? Does working on this temple of Christ's church, does it make you feel better about yourself? Do you, do you sense God is satisfied with your deeds? Have you gained any self-confidence in this process? Does it, does it make you happy? Well, as long as you're following your heart and... It makes you happy. Surely you can believe that God is good with whatever you do. Well done. No, that's pop psychology. The Bible never reads in that way. In Christianity, the source of all truth, the Scriptures, uh, always remains the governing authority for all faith and practice, not our feelings Specifically in Haggai, under the Old Covenant, scriptural authority resides in the law of Moses. Consult the law, says Haggai. Do you become holy by engaging in this good work? The answer, no. Why? Because holiness does not transfer by the touch. Verse 12, I'll I'll paraphrase here. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and it touches something, anything, will that secondary item also become holy? The priest answers, no. That's not how the law reads. Likewise, Any work of sincere, godly service, you're mowing the lawn at the church, you're cleaning the bathrooms, putting money in the offering, witnessing picking a guitar, even opening your Bible to to study and then teach others, it does not improve your holiness before God. That holiness that God bestows only through faith in Christ. Here's a summary. Works are not a means of grace. You cannot improve upon or add your own merits to what Christ has perfected. You can't earn salvation. And rather, works are acts of worship that flow in gratitude from an already pure heart one born again by the Holy Spirit. Well, I truly hope you can see the difference. There is a great chasm fixed between works righteousness and God's grace that spans between heaven and hell. We should all know the five solas, the solas of the Reformation. Some of you seem puzzled, that's why I'm bringing it up. These were banner principles of the Reformers. The Protestant Reformation, and they're expressed in Latin as sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. Translated for us, we receive grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. These were the battle cries of the Reformation. If you wonder why Haggai would need to combat the error of works righteousness in Israel, consider the modern predicament that we are in in our day. If you stop ten people in the park and ask them if they're going to heaven, nine are going to respond yes. Next, if you ask them why eight of those nine are going to unfurl their resume, go goes something like this. Well, because I'm a good person. You are. How so? Well, because I volunteer to pick up trash by the road twice a week. Or because each Thanksgiving I donate turkeys. Or or I walk my neighbor's dog when they're on vacation. Or, here's one, because I go to church. Really? Those things make you good? Where does Christ fit into all this? In the blank stare. Are you good enough to go to heaven? by these works, the problem is you're not that good. In fact, citing works exposes your heart as actually being really prideful and sinful and bad. Can I say that? And this crisis of theological misunderstanding prompted One of the reformers named Martin Luther to to spark the Reformation. Roman Catholicism. It has created a redemption process from sin that works something like this. Offer penance. Purchase indulgences. Participate faithfully in the sacraments. Take Mass every morning. Confess to the priest. Say the rosary. Donate to to build the cathedrals of Europe. What a great work you do. And doing these will surely enhance your case before God at the judgment. Well, and then, you know, if somehow you still fall short, you, you can still pay for any of your remaining sins in purgatory. Really. That is not faith in Christ. That is not Christianity. Observing sacraments and performing good works, they don't transfer holiness to you. They cannot save you. Works cannot save you. Such an erroneous system of doctrines, it damns you. Why? The answer begins in verse 13. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, Oh, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Remember, he's addressing the community of Israel. Citing the prophet Isaiah, who spoke to this same community sometime before, a couple hundred years before, Jesus Himself quoted chapter 29 and verse 13, where the Lord says, "These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is removed far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition, learned by a road." Is it just a habit? Is it just a tradition? Is it just what you've always done? The body of Christ means more than that to Jesus. The priests in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 13 recognize the source of the contamination. If you remain unclean, every single work which you touch is deemed by God unclean. You you yourself must first be cleansed. In our covenant, that's in the blood of Christ, before anything you can touch becomes clean. You, you must be cleansed first. Your problem originates from having had contact with a corpse. Some of you are saying, that's not me. I haven't touched one of them. Oh, really? Numbers 19 verse 16 states that the law says, Anyone who is in the open field touches one who, and touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. It's a learning device for Israel, a shadow of what is to come. And before they can ever be declared clean, they must first go through a process of purification. Seems simple enough, right? Furthermore, Numbers states, the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He remains unclean. So it shall be a perpetual state for them. Furthermore, Anything that is unclean, or that the unclean person touches, shall be unclean. It's a perpetual statute. I'm sorry, I said state. Perpetual statute. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean. The law states that if you've had contact with a corpse, and there's other things you could make contact with as well, but if you've had contact with a corpse, every work you touch, No matter how devout or religious you believe you are, everything is deemed unclean. Doesn't matter if you're building a steeple, a hundred foot high steeple atop a church, uh, donating your own time and your tools, or or singing a song, no matter how beautiful it is. uh, If you are unclean, your offering of worship is unclean. It cannot make you holy. God assures through Haggai every work of your hands remains unclean if you've had contact with a corpse. That impurity, that death, that, that deadness transfers to everything that you touch. I'm going to fast forward here a little bit. I'm going to take a pretty big leap, but I, I, think, I think you're probably there ready to jump with me. Here's the theological leap. What if you are a corpse? What if, just what if, you remain spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins and are by nature a child of wrath even like the rest? If you are dead, if you are a spiritual corpse, will any act of generosity or volunteering at the church or any other good deeds you do, will it make you holy? No. It won't and it can't. That holiness does not transfer to you. And will... Any or all of your efforts be acceptable to God apart from Christ? Nothing. Nothing. Every work you do remains perpetually unclean because it has been offered to God from a corpse. You're dead. You need to be cleansed. Well, you need to be made alive. The term corpse in verse 13 is literally, some of your translations will reflect this, or you'll have a footnote, it's soul. But it suggests a dead soul. There there is nothing a spiritually dead corpse can do to make himself or herself clean. There exists no work that is acceptable to God, and you cannot be cleansed from your sins through works. You could work your butt off in the church for decades and it could all be for naught unless your soul is first cleansed through trusting Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, is this imperative? Is this important? We have to get this right. Have you been spending your life trying to earn merit For salvation, through works, stop. Stop. It will never work. It will never transfer. If you've been incorrectly taught that your works are what make you acceptable before God, that is wrong. That is dead wrong. Works can never improve or or contribute to the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. There exists nothing improving upon his work. Scripture declares, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them we are not saved by good works we are saved for good works and that is worship that we offer to God and once you have been cleansed from your sins by Believing in the sinless sacrifice, the atoning death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then everything you offer and worship to God after that is clean. Who wouldn't want that deal? I'll conclude with our scripture reading earlier from Titus chapter 1 and verse 15. Good summary here. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both in their mind and their conscience they are defiled, they profess to know God. But by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Be careful with the statement there, uh, To the pure, all things are pure. Uh, That doesn't indicate that once you're a Christian, you can act sinfully uh, however you please, and God doesn't mind that he just sees it all as pure. No, rather, it means all scripturally legitimate acts of worship offered by a cleansed and holy heart. They're always acceptable, and they're always pleasing to Christ. But for the ones who remain defiled, an unbelieving heart Nothing is pure, and nothing is acceptable to Him. Well, this is hard, but we have to recognize it. Even the most selfless act of a Buddhist monk is not acceptable to God because his false religion circumvents the righteousness of Christ and has not been offered by a heart cleansed in faith it can't save him. Everything's defiled. The works of any Buddhist hands, therefore, remain defiled by the corpse of an unbelieving soul. In learning what it means to have these uh, holy hands, so everything we touch is holy, each week we are to gather in God's presence with pure hands, cleansed in faith, Unstained, left unstained by the world. This is what Paul means when he tells Timothy he wants men in every place to be lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. He wants to see holy hands. This lifting of holy hands doesn't, doesn't prescribe any particular posture of worship. Uh, rather, it's God saying, God is saying, when you gather together for corporate worship, I'm going to see your hands. And I'll know where they've been. Don't, don't think you can hide them. I want you to bring holy hands, cleansed in faith by Christ. Uh, there, there are so many different postures of worship seen throughout the Bible. You, you can basically put your hands wherever you want. Really. Do it. Do it, and it makes you feel like it's right. I'm a Stoic Norwegian. That's how I was raised. My hands tend to gravitate towards my pockets. Other people's hands are more expressive. Great. But God still sees them. And he says, when you come to me, your hands better look like Christ, unstained by the world, because your hands are an extension of your heart. And God says, I see that too. Begin by having our hearts cleansed by faith and then afterward all the work of our hands and building God's temple and his kingdom are assured to be pleasing and acceptable to Christ. Can't go wrong.